Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that explores issues in agricultural and medicinal biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of moving innovations to applications with communication. Now here's your special guest host. Okay, welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Dr. Jonathan Dalzell. I'm a lecturer in molecular parasitology at Queen's University, Belfast. And today we'll be talking about biotech approaches to controlling plant parasitic nematodes. So we have three guests today, two of which are standing with me in a Tanzanian um, farm. Uh, I have uh, Dr. Nessie Luambano um, from the Sugarcane Research Institute here in Tanzania, and also Dr. Danny Coyne, um, a nematologist from the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture. After the break, we'll speak with Dr. Lena Tripathi, also from IITA, and um, we'll get a feel for the problem of plant parasitic nematodes and for the biotechnology solutions that can be used to control them. So perhaps, uh, Nessie, if I could ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a little bit about what you do here in, in Tanzania. I'm Nessie Luambano, a researcher working with government, and uh, my, my station is Kibaha. I'm a nematologist, trained nematologist, and also I practice nematology. The problem we have in Tanzania that we have nematodes, we work with farmers, especially on banana, vegetables, like tomato, African vegetables, like nightshade, but all of them, they are highly affected by nematodes, like root knot nematodes. Most of the farmers, first, they are not aware of the problem, so even if they do pesticide application, they don't know what they control. Whether they control, they use fungicides or other pesticides, but maybe the problem with nematodes, which is not seen easily from there, above there, above the the ground, you need to uproot the plant to see how the roots has been affected 
and the, that effect can go through the plants sure. and can affect also water uptake and the nutrient uptake. So normally what we are trying to do now is to make people aware of the problem, especially farmers, small-scale farmers, so that they can minimize application of pesticides when they know the problem is not what they, they, they control. Another thing is we are lacking politicians and even scientists who knows about nematodes. We have very few nematologists in Tanzania and recently I can say we are maybe two or three active nematologists and most we have no skills on biotech solution. Yes, we can use resistant varieties through transgenic but still the genetic engineering is going very slow because it has not been accepted, fully accepted by police people, consumers and the government itself. So we are still making efforts to make people aware of the genetic engineering so that maybe in future we get plants which can be resistant to nematodes through genetic engineering. Okay, so major problems in terms of um, farmer awareness of nematodes as an issue. Um, so that's the first problem you encounter uh, here in Tanzania. They can't see these nematodes, they're microscopic and they live in the soil. Um, and and the, the impact they have on the crop is not always immediately obvious. And um, Nessa, you're the, the, the only senior nematologist in, in Tanzania. And so it's a big country for, for one person. Um, and we've just come from, from Nessie's laboratory uh, at the Sugarcane Research Institute, and it's fantastically equipped. So you, you, you're doing a great job, Nessie, and uh, I keep that up. So also we have uh, Danny Coyne with us. Um, so Danny, perhaps if you could introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them about what you do. Thank you very much, yes. My name is Danny Coyne, and I'm with the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture, IITA. It's one of the international research centres and I'm based in Kenya but I work regionally so across sub-Saharan Africa and with that I work very closely with our partner institutions and people such as Nessie. So Nessie and myself work very closely together. As nematologists, I'm a nematologist and as nematologists we are very few, we're a rare breed as it were, so we need to stay together and work together closely. Um, I, effectively I work on um, uh, Sahara, the sub-Saharan African crops uh, staple crops but also across the board uh, looking at nematode problems diagnosing nematode problems characterizing nematode problems towards uh, developing management options that are suitable for the African farmer right okay so, so Danny can you, can you tell the listeners a little bit about um, the life cycle of a plant parasitic nematode there's obviously a diversity of species and families but, but perhaps just tell us a little bit about um, how they infect a crop plant and what they do when they're inside. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think just to make a, a, a clear point, first of all, is that here in the tropics, the biological cycles are much faster. Uh, the life cycle is, is uh, conducted. In, the life cycle uh, occurs within a much shorter time frame than it, they do in temperate climates. So if you're listening from a temperate climate, such as the UK or Europe, uh, a nematode cycle will, you may get one or per, perhaps two life cycles within a season. Here in the tropics we have a life cycle of a, com of a common nematode, root knot nematode for example, that is within one month. So you have 
from one single nematode, uh, the juvenile will infect the root, it will find its feeding source, it will develop into an adult and it will reproduce within 25 to 30 days, give or take. That one single nematode will produce 500, uh, as, a, as a root knot nematode for example, 500 to 1000 eggs. So within one month you've multiplied the population by a thousand fold. Uh, over two months you can imagine that the rapid population buildup that that occurs and a common fault or problem that we often see is let's take tomato plants um, it's infected with root knot nematode to begin with uh, they develop they build up their populations but the plant is not affected overly and the farmer continues to water his plant it continues to provide his fertilizer because it's doing healthy it's, it's growing healthily and then as it starts to bear fruit it also coincides with a, a massive flux of nematode problems on the roots which are destroying the root system which are affecting water use efficiency access to water and access to nutrients and suddenly the plant folds and the farmer is left with nothing and at the number of times that Nessie and I have seen this kind of problem uh, and it only affects the farmer once he, he or she has invested a huge amount in water and nutrients and fertilizer and time and it is devastating to see right. and that's just one one example yeah right so it's a huge problem so Nessie you you've been working uh, on a project that's been funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, to survey the the plant parasite nematodes associated with banana in, in Tanzania perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that project and what you have found okay I decided to do that project on banana crop especially in major banana growing areas of Tanzania. We have some places where banana is a staple crop, it's a staple food and that's where I, ta I targeted. And uh, I was collecting information, first to get the basic information and the status, to know the status of nematodes on those areas, so that when we come up with management measures, strategic management measures, we know where to concentrate and what type of nematode to deal with. Second, I thought we should know whether these nematodes we are getting, if is one species, from different places, are they the same? Do they differ genetically, morphologically? Yes, that's what we are doing also. But later on, to get diagnostic tools, molecular tools for diagnosing nematodes so that we also have skills on up-to-date skills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if, if a farmer is suffering from a nematode infection, what kind of control options are available? There are some available control measures, like on banana, there are different control measures, practices, sanitation, use of tissue culture materials, which can help the plants to start without nematodes, though they can be infected later, right. but you start with clean planting materials. Okay. You can do paling and uh, treat them on hot water for some time to kill the nematodes, then inoculum, and um, there are other organic amendments which you can incorporate the organic nematicides like neem, Oh, African, the targetes, 
right, targeted okay. things. Yeah, people have tried and they, they work somehow. They can okay. minimize the load. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So interesting you mentioned about the, the sanitation of planting material. Danny, you, uh, a couple of days ago we were surveying banana farms um, just outside Nairobi. And the second farm we visited um, to look at, it, it looked healthy, it looked good, and you were a little bit reluctant to get out of the car and, and to go looking. T- tell the listeners a little bit about what we find there. Yeah, very good. Well remembered, Johnny. Um, it's a classic problem with nematodes is that um, you, it is difficult to see whether the crop is affected or not. And this is where Nessie says that there's a lack of awareness uh, of nematode problems. And this is classical situation. You look at a field and it looks healthy, it looks good, but it's not until you actually assess it with a trained eye and determine whether it has got a problem or not. And I was reluctant. It was a nice looking banana plant, a crop. It was well managed, it was irrigated, it was fertilized. And I didn't think that we would find any nematode problem at all. So I was quite shocked to actually see when we started digging the roots up that they were heavily, very heavily infected. Uh, I was very shocked to see that. Uh, And it's interesting that when talking to the farmer, he said that over the past few years, he used to get a few years ago, he used to get very large bunches, and he's now getting bunches of banana that are about half the size uh, that he was getting. That they've gradually gone down, and he has put that down to um, the soil fertility, basically. Right. Um, but we were able to di- to discuss with him, and I'm absolutely certain that that decline in production is as a direct consequence of nematode damage to the root systems. Right. Okay. And so one of one of the things that you talked through the farmer, you asked him first of all, how does he replant the banana? And so they take suckers um, that come from the, the, the stem of the, the plant and they replant them. And, and actually, so you took it and he was horrified as, as you began to work on this on this sucker. Um, you chopped off all the roots. Uh, you told him, that's not enough. You need to put it in some boiling water for 30 seconds, really just to sterilize the plant and to kill any nematodes that are there. And it, it's fascinating to think that even whenever you, you chop off all the roots of this material, you put it in boiling water, it will still yield much better without having nematodes there in the first place. And so it, this is a process that, that seems to work. It, it works very well. We've proven it to work very well indeed, actually. Um, banana, as you say, is a vegetatively propagated plant. So we, we remove a small sucker, side sucker that's growing and replant that and this is one of the major problems with vegetatively propagated material that you transfer the pests and diseases with the crop with the planting material whether it be potatoes um, uh, yam or banana uh, it's transferred with the planting material and it perpetuates that disease cycle so by cleaning the material or as Nessie says using tissue culture uh, derived material that is healthy you start with a clean healthy system and it is possible with suckers. Farmers will always use banana suckers. So we've been working with farmers in both East and West Africa to show, demonstrate an easy sanitation method, which is simply taking the sucker, removing the infected roots, quickly sanitizing it in boiling water, and then planting it. Farmers are quite often horrified by the, um, the drastic if changes to their normal system uh, but once they see the benefits and this is the important bit actually farmers if they are going to invest time and effort into doing something differently they need to know that that is worth their while so we always have to demonstrate and show the difference in their method versus an improved or or an alternative method seeing is believing and a demonstration of the farmer system versus whatever option were or management 
technique that we're introducing side by side to see if there really is a difference to them. Right. And seeing is believing. Right. Okay. And they have to. Okay. It takes a long time in, in some cases. Right. Okay. And so, uh, I'm al- alongside these these simple sanitation processes, which can be effective. Um, uh, typically, in, in in the Western world, we will use nematicides that are, that are chemicals sprayed on into the soil, and they're they're really quite toxic and nasty substances. Um, a lot of these have been removed um, from use. And, and just not replaced by other uh, appropriate measures. So, so probably one of the most cost-effective potential approaches is through biotechnology. And, uh, and so after the break, we're going to talk to Dr. Lena Tripathi, who's going to tell us about um, some of these projects and give us an idea of how that can work. But Nessie, perhaps just to finish, um, in, in Tanzania, what, what is the situation regarding GM crops? What is the attitude? Mm, just recently, one of the crop has been given approval to do controlled closed trials maize drought resistant maize but uh, still cassava they've been doing transgenic for the control of virus but not yet out it's still in the lab yeah and and how do you think public how do you think farmers will react to this technology if and when it becomes available to them still they are they keep on understanding slowly but i'm sure in future we'll come up with many farmers who understand the importance of using transgenic especially to to tackle some problems yeah okay Okay, well, thank you very much. That's a great introduction to the problem of nematoparasites um, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, We're going to go now and catch a flight to Nairobi, and after the break, we'll talk about biotechnology as it relates um, to this issue. Um, So thank you very much to Dr. Nessie Lombano and Dr. Danny Coyne, and uh, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Very good. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Folta. And this is Paul Vincelli. And we're here talking about the next generation of potential opportunities with the Talking Biotech podcast. And we have a very special invitation for you. (laughs) Okay, so here's the deal. What we're looking for is to expand the opportunities of using this vehicle to expose more people to the opportunities within science communication. How do you build your brand by potentially hosting a Talking Biotech episode. Hosting a Talking Biotech episode accomplishes many things for me. One is I learn more about a topic that I'm interested in. And uh, two is I develop some skills on science communication and do it in a way that's really quite friendly and interactive. So how you do it is really simple. All you need to do is identify someone you would like to talk to, learn something about what they do, Make the interview time to talk to them and have the conversation. It's really simple. You do that, send us the audio files, and I'll take care of the rest. And uh, I'll offer myself to mentor somebody who wants to, uh, you know, stick their toe in the water and try it out. And in the days of standing up for science, there's no better way for you to stand up for the science you enjoy and that you would like to communicate to others than to share those important stories. And use this platform to talk about what you're interested in. So think about it. It's a uh, wonderful opportunity, and we're excited to extend it to you. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're joined now with Dr. Lena Tripathi, who you may remember from episode 29 uh, on this podcast. Um, uh, Lena, perhaps you could uh, reintroduce yourselves, yourself to the, uh, to the audience. 
thanks Johnny. Um, I'm Lina Tripathi, uh, I'm a principal scientist uh, uh, working at IIT based in Nairobi at Becca Hub um, and my expertise is in uh, genetic engineering and molecular biology. Okay, great. And so you'll not only know Lena from this podcast, but also from the excellent new documentary film, Food Evolution. Um, I, I met with uh, Lena uh, a couple of times recently. I should actually say right now up front that uh, we met in Nairobi as planned, but got caught up in, in other scientific endeavors and didn't get around to recording the podcast. So we're, we're doing it now by Skype, which of course gets rid of the issues with the noise um, from wind interference in the first section. I don't think we'll try that again. Um, but Lena did an excellent job um, of uh, contributing to that discussion in food evolution. And again, I would encourage anybody that hasn't seen it to go out and, and give it a watch. It's a, a really compelling addition to the, the public discussion on genetic modification and the benefits that it can bring about. Lena, how, how did you find the process of being involved in, in food evolution? Oh, that, that was great actually because one of my collaborators in US introduced me um, to Scott Kennedy and, and his team and then they approached me, then they visited us here. So that was a good experience and, and then also interacting with the whole team and uh, so it was actually in the starting it was quite lengthy process because they recorded quite a lot and I know it might be very difficult for them to reduce it to the size of the film. So that was experience yeah wow great yeah and and some i you know i went into this film obviously very interested about the content i wasn't expecting to be moved emotionally and i, I find that some of the scenes in particular that, that you were involved in in terms of looking at some genetically engineered banana that could benefit smallhold farmers they really were quite moving because the the, the farmer um was was really emotional about the fact that there was a solution to the problem she was facing and that was remind me remind us lena what what was the disease in in that in that context uh, this is a bacterial wilt disease in banana and that's actually a very serious problem in east africa and the farmer who is on the movie actually we visited uh, the field of that farmer and most of his her bananas were actually wiped off because of that disease. So that's why you know, like she became very emotional when she came and she saw very healthy, nice plants in our trial. Yeah, I mean, it was it was incredibly moving as a scene, and 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 puts this whole discussion in into context actually. Um, but today we're going to be talking about your work as it pertains to the transformation of banana and plantain, and specifically. Um, in relation to the control of plant parasitic nematodes. Now, in the first section of the podcast, we talked about the issue of nematodes more generally. But, of course, Lena, you've been involved in several projects um, that concern nematode control. And I wonder, perhaps, if you could just briefly outline those projects and, and the outcomes from those projects. Okay, so I think the first project where I started working on developing plantains uh, resistant to nematodes was in collaboration with University of Leeds. So I was working very closely with Professor Howard Atkinson and, and um, uh, uh, Hugh Roderick. Uh, so I was working very closely with them and then we were using two different technology 
for one was uh, the cysteine proteinase inhibitor uh, cysteine um, which is like work as like antifidant and then the second one the second technology is um, a synthetic peptide which acts as like a repellent because you know is um, it doesn't allow the nematodes to recognize the roots so you can reduce the population that way and we were trying to actually stack these two technology together so that you can get the more stable and um, um, enhanced resistance so I'm talking about like durability so that the, uh, the trade can be durable for several generations and on that project actually it went quite successful um, it's uh, we produce a lot of transgenic plantain, a variety called Gonja Manjaya, which is uh, in East Africa and Central Africa is a quite popular variety. And in our lab, we use normally the cell suspension for uh, developing the transgenic plants because that way you can get like, because the plants generate from single cells, so you can get very much uniformly transformed plants. Um, and we generated actually over 200 uh, independent events uh, using different constructs with a single gene and as well as the stack gene. And that was our first experience also uh, developing the cell suspension for Gonja because nobody has done that before. So we thought like that was like great for us, you know, to get the cell suspension and then to get the transgenic. Uh, and then by the end of the project, we had results from the glass house, so we evaluated these uh, transgenic plants. Actually, initially we molecular characterized the plants for the expression as well as the integration of the gene uh, using molecular techniques like southern hybridization, where you can see the copy number, and then using the western blotting to see the expression of uh, of the gene. And after that, we did the glass house evaluation. Um, and our interest was actually not only to t test the technology against like one nematode species, but to check around, uh, against the broad spectrum uh, nematode species. Um, because normally in the field, you will not find only one species of nematodes. So that's why in the uh, glass house, we challenged the plants with a mixed population. Uh, of nematodes and we identified several uh, transgenic events where uh, we found more than 80% resistance uh, against nematodes. That means like the density of the nematode population on these transgenic uh, plantains were much lower in comparison uh, to the control plants. Um, and at that point the project ended uh, but through IITA, um, we still, um, I managed to get some small funding so that we can test the response of these transgenic plants in, in the field condition. Because sometimes the glass house results doesn't correlate very well in the field because, you know, there are other variation in the field as well. Um, so we took the best 12 events uh, to the field and they have um, uh, some of them has the single peptide, but uh, some of them has the dual technology with the cystatins uh, plus the peptide. Um, and what we did was we pre-inoculated um, the plants uh, with the nematodes because uh, the field there was no bananas before, so we thought maybe that there will not be uniform nematode population in the field. So um, we 
we in the glass house one month prior to the field uh, plantation we inoculated the plants in the pots with mixed population of the nematodes and then we put them in into the field you know, in uganda um, so this project was also the another collaborator on the project was the national agricultural research organization in uganda who are based um, at kawanda um, so the field trial results were also fantastic because we've identified a few lines where we have more than 90% um, resistance against nematodes. Um, um, but then we stopped at that point because because of the lack of funding, um, this product just remained on shelf. After that, we because you know plantains are more grown in the West Africa, so our idea was that the best events we can try them in the field trials in let's say in Nigeria that you know if they can provide also in that environment resistance to nematodes, but uh, we couldn't do that. So that project ended at that point. And then later on I met you and then we had like a collaboration and we have now the collaborative project with you where uh, we are generating, uh, so you generated the construct and sent to us and now we are trying to generate uh, the transgenic plantain and this time uh, because we have self suspension of the farmer preferred variety from Nigeria called Alpaba, so we are transforming that variety, that's like a favorite variety of farmers uh, in Nigeria and uh, we have six different constraints from you where uh, and we have transformed all of them into a purple and we are just waiting the plants to come out. We Actually the good news is we already started seeing some germination of the embryo so we have tiny seedlings coming out. Oh wow great, well that's good yeah. news, <laughs> that's yeah. fantastic. Right, so oh, there's a lot to unpack in there, a lot of interesting aspects. Um, so, so to summarize, you, with your work in conjunction with Professor Howard Atkinson um, and, and, and Dr. Hugh Roderick at uh, the University of Leeds, there, there were two, two approaches. One was based on a, what, what is called a cystatin, which inhibits, yes. it inhibits the activity of, of proteases. So these, these break up proteins and are part of um, the feeding process of the nematode. These, these break up food and then allow it to be assimilated and absorbed into the cells of the nematode. And so, so you had a, a trait that inhibited that activity and meant they couldn't feed as well which worked really well, actually. Um, and on top of that, um, the University of Leeds developed uh, a really, really interesting trait based on a peptide. So this is a really small protein that actually, and, and bizarrely, is, is taken up directly from the outside world into the brain of the nematode parasite and interferes at the level of the neurobiology of the nematode. And inhibits their ability to find the host and, and interact with the world in a, in a sensory capacity. And so that prevented infection. And then you took both these things, you put them together in, in one uh, plantain and tested that. And, you know, you, you, <laughs> you've alluded to the fact that, that we have a collaboration. And I, I'll be completely honest. I, I read the paper that, that uh, demonstrated such high field resistance of these combined traits and I wondered why on earth we would bother. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we need multiple tools, of course. And so potentially these can help each other. Um, but and, and here's where it gets interesting uh, and disappointing for me on a personal level. You, you've clearly demonstrated 
that there is technology that will protect important crops from these nematode parasites. And as you explained, it isn't getting into the, the hands of smallhold farmers because of issues with funding and follow through on that side. It's not because the science didn't work. Now, from my perspective, that is, of course, a horrendous thing because it means there are solutions that can't be used. Uh, Lena, perhaps as, a, as a, an individual scientist, as somebody who invested years of your life in this aspect of research, how, I mean, how do, you, how do you reconcile this? How do you feel about the impact that this has had on technology that you have developed and now is going nowhere? Yeah, I means I think, to be honest, actually, it's quite frustrating because uh, not every time, you know, you try something and it works out. Uh, but in this case, you know, the technology uh, which actually Howard and and uh, me, we were like so excited to see that the things are working in the field. And uh, we tried actually several uh, um, donors that, you know, if we can get some, even though small amount of money and we could have tested this in, in Nigeria um, where they grow more of the plantain. You know, East Africa doesn't grow that much plantain. And and then if it works, uh, Miss, I think we could have been very, very happy if, you know, this techno technology can come closer to the farmers, you know, so that the farmers can benefit uh, with the technology. So it's bit disappointing to see that, you know, when technology is working, you have fantastic results. Okay, we got good publication, um, but that's not everything, you know, when we, we talk about the food security and so many farmers are, um, are suffering. So I think we want to see like these type of technologies definitely uh, going to the farmer's field. Right. And, and that, Lena, that's a very measured response. I think if it had been me, I would have been looking to, to flip some tables in frustration. Um, but and here is the thing. There are again, there are solutions that work. And so for those that, that have anything to say on funding matters, you know, I would challenge you. We're, we're looking for solutions that will help smallhold farmers. And here is one that is literally sitting on ice in Lena's laboratory in Nairobi and is available um, for development and extremely promising. Um, so it is there to be funded and actually delivered on. Uh, and that is, that is frustrating and really disappointing. What, one of the, the common arguments you get from um, anti-GMO activism relates to the fact that, oh, you say that this technology can deliver such amazing things and resistance, but where is it? Well, in this instance, it's, it's sitting in your freezer, Lena. <laughs> Um, and it's there to be had for farmers. Uh, so, and, and that's great. Um, the, it can be used to help people. And so you alluded to, to our collaboration, which actually built upon the work of the University of Leeds and developed it in a, a different way. Instead of using synthetic peptide chemistry, we decided to dig into the nematode's own brain and use a class of peptides already there called neuropeptides and they interfere with the nematode's behavior at really, um, really low doses and inhibit its ability to find the host. And so, as you say, that's being engineered into banana and plantain right now. Of course, the, the other exciting development on that front um, was engineering these traits into microbes that live on the plant roots. And so these microbes engineer the, the resistance trait 
uh, by themselves and spit it out into the soil and interfere specifically with nematode behavior. It doesn't even have activity against different nematodes that aren't parasites. So there are approaches that we can use to prevent parasitism of banana and plantain. And, and really, it, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. How, how do we actually deliver this to farmers when um, so much of the issue surrounds policy and public perception? Um, how, how do you perceive the environment in terms of public perception in, in East Africa right now? We haven't done much for the nematode resistance in terms of the public perception, but um, my another project where we are working on bacterial wilt resistance, actually on that project we had some survey uh, to see like, you know, if the farmers and the consumers are going to accept the technology and normally the farmers doesn't have any issues whether they are GM or not GM. What they want is a solution. If they are suffering with some of the production constraint and if there is a technology which can provide a solution to that, uh, I found like uh, farmers in East Africa are quite open to that solution, which was amazing. I was not expecting out that result from the survey, but that's how it came out. We published that actually in PLOS One, I think like a year or two year back. And, and of course, you know, since you've last spoken to Kevin in episode 29, there has been quite a major decision on, on biological safety in Uganda. Um, do, yeah. do you want to comment on that briefly? Yeah, so actually, uh, recently, uh, Uganda has um, approved the biosafety um, uh, bill into the law. So that means, like, you know, that Uganda is now ready if, uh, for commercialization of the GM technology if, if any technology is available. Yeah, like a type of framework is required for, for commercialization. Okay, Lena, this has been really interesting. Thank you for your, your insight to the process um, into genetically engineering banana and plantain. That concludes another episode of the Talking Biotech podcast. Um, if you like the podcast, please write a review on iTunes and tell a friend. A wider audience helps us to share the science. I'm Dr. Jonathan Dalzell. With me at the minute, Dr. Lena Chapathy. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.